Thanks to our sponsors, The Genesis Group, First Eyes, and AB Media. That's A-B-B-I media.com. They host my website, thecountrywriter.com, where you can send me a message or you can buy one of my books. This is a special edition of the John G. Moore podcast. Typically, it is called the John G. Moore 5-Minute Podcast, but we are going to run over today. Important topic worth discussing, and our guest today is Dr. Meg Reitmeyer, who is an endocrinologist. Welcome to the microphone. Thank you. What is an endocrinologist? An endocrinologist is a doctor who deals with diabetes, uh, metabolic disorders, and hormones. And you have had an active role in the treatment, what would you say, planning or implementation of COVID since all of this began earlier in 2020? Well, I actually have an undergraduate degree in microbiology and have been involved with public health the last few years and have not been doing endocrinology. So yes, when COVID started last year, I became very involved with COVID on public policy, contact tracing, and now learning about the vaccines and how we're going to be distributing them and using them. As we record this, the vaccines have not yet been FDA approved, correct? The Pfizer and Moderna, I believe, are coming up on December 10th to the FDA review board. Not been approved yet, but when they are approved, there are three different companies. If you would, talk just briefly about each company and sort of the efficacy that the testing has shown for each of their vaccine versions. Well, there's actually about nine or 10 different companies in various stages of trials right now, but there's three companies that have announced data that are going to be trying to get FDA approval again, either on December 10th or very shortly after that. The first one that announced their data earlier this month was Pfizer. Pfizer is using mRNA technology. They did an international trial that involved patients in multiple countries, including the United States, Germany, Turkey, South Africa, Brazil, and Argentina. And they showed that 95% of patients within 28 days of receiving the first dose of the vaccine were protected from COVID. And this trial included, I believe, around 43,000 patients. So that's a pretty good-sized trial. They did see fatigue as a common side effect in about 4% of participants and headaches in about 2%. Only one person developed a severe case of COVID. And they did do a number of patients that were older in the United States part of the trial. 45% of participants were aged 56 to 85. And 30% of U.S. participants were in racially and ethnic diverse groups. The other company using mRNA technology, which is coming up hopefully for review on December 10th, is Moderna. Their vaccine is 94.5% effective. Like the Pfizer vaccine, it requires two doses. They did 30,000 patients in the United States over 100 different sites. They had no severe cases of disease in the people that received the vaccine. There were 10 cases of severe disease in the placebo group. They did have problems just like with the Pfizer vaccine with some fatigue. They had some people complain of joint aches and redness and soreness at the injection site. All that was only around 2% of people. Both these trials only included people age 18 or older. They did include 7,000 people over the age of 65. And they also included 5,000 people below the age of 65 who had high-risk medical conditions. And 37% of the people were either Hispanic or African-American. Now, AstraZeneca, I don't believe, is asked for FDA approval yet, although this is a moving target and I may just not have 
caught that, but they just announced their data a few days ago. They use a different type of vaccine. They're using a attenuated live virus called adenovirus, which is different than COVID as a vector to get the COVID into the system in a safe way and to stimulate the immune process. They did two different regimens on their trials. They did 23,000 people in the UK and Brazil, again, all over 18 years old. And they did two dosing regimens. One had 62% efficacy, the other 90%. So the overall came out as 70%. But I assume that they're going to go for approval for the arm of the study that showed the 90% efficacy, because that'd be more in keeping with what we saw with the two other vaccines. So that is a lot of information to digest. The question and the reason for today's podcast, I have seen a number of people posting on social media that they are just heck bent, that they are not going to get the COVID vaccine. And I'm seeing three different groups of people. One is the, I don't get the flu vaccine. I don't get the shingles vaccine. I ain't getting this. They just don't do vaccines, right? They don't believe in vaccines. Second group believes that this whole COVID thing was planned and the virus was manufactured and then released and the vaccine's just going to do them in if COVID didn't. And then you've got people who are just, I would say, a little bit leery of getting something that was rushed comparatively. Let, Let me put it that way. When you look at most vaccines, when they are researched and then submitted for FDA approval, you're talking years, not not nine months or whatever it's been. So why should we get the vaccine? And are there people who shouldn't get the vaccine? To answer your last question first, some of it's going to depend on which vaccine. For example, the AstraZeneca one, because it's a live attenuated virus, is not appropriate for certain groups, such as immunocompromised people. Uh, that would be include people with certain diseases like cancer, people getting chemo, people with autoimmune disease who are on immunosuppressive drugs or pregnant women. They could possibly take the other vaccines, though. In general terms, vaccines are generally safe. Now, nothing in this world is 100% safe. Even water isn't safe. You can t- drink too much of it. There can be contaminants in it. So anything we put in our body has a certain risk to it. The issue is sitting down and look at the risks versus the benefits. Personally, I think that the risk of COVID far outweighs anything I've seen on the vaccines. And I think the risk for most infectious disease for most people far outweighs the risk of vaccines. Now, again, there may be people with certain medical conditions or issues that that's different. And that's where you have to get your doctor's input on that. We have been battling infectious disease since literally the beginning of time. The coronavirus dates back to at least 8,000 BCE. That's when we have found the first samples of it in uh, tissue that has been discovered from animals and people buried that far back. So coronavirus has been with us for, what, 10,000 years now. Now, this is a new version of it, yes, but mutations happen to viruses all the time. And pandemics and epidemics happen with regularity throughout recorded history. Now, we've been lucky because of advances in modern medicine and technology. The last big pandemic was 100 years ago. This is not something that was manufactured or was not foreseen by everyone in public health that was going to happen eventually. And honestly, it's going to happen again in some form or another. So part of what we need to take away from this is learning how to be better prepared the next time. 
So do you think there is any credence whatsoever to accusations that this was developed either purposely or accidentally was released from Wuhan, China? I don't think so. I mean, if you look at the natural mutation rate for RNA viruses, of which coronavirus is one of them, it's frankly surprising it didn't happen earlier. I mean, this appears to be a natural mutation. And part of infectious disease is literally a numbers game. As we get more people in the world and we get more interactions with animals, there are more opportunities for viruses that are in the animal kingdom to spill over into humanity. And part of that is bad luck of timing. And part of the reason we've seen some illnesses pop up in the last few decades that that we never saw before, like Ebola, like Marburg, has literally just been the odds game that more people are interacting with more animals. And we're seeing a spillover from the animals where you see more rapid mutation and development of these viruses into humans. Our guest is Dr. Meg Reitmeyer, who is very well-versed. If she won't allow me to call her an expert on COVID, I'll say well-versed on COVID. Let's talk about the animal connection. I remember when HIV, it wasn't even called HIV when it first came out. I was a reporter at the time. It was called something politically incorrect now. But there was a, even from the very beginning, there was a connection to simians, different types of monkeys. I remember studying many years ago that the treatment for smallpox came from giving people a little bit of cowpox. So the last version, and I've forgotten, was it AstraZeneca that you mentioned was using a live version of, of the corona vaccine? It's using a live version of adenovirus, which is another respiratory virus, as a vehicle to try to introduce some components of the COVID virus into the system. The thinking of using these newer technologies rather than using whole COVID virus is you reduce the risk of infection occurring. Attenuated vaccines do have a very slight, slight theoretical chance that the virus could activate and become infectious. So by using the adenovirus, which is a mild, less dangerous virus, and you just has a few components of the virus instead of the whole thing, you bypass that risk. So who's going to get the vaccine first? Well, the CDC is supposed to be meeting, actually, I, be, it's, I think it's either Thursday, this Thursday or next Thursday, to come up with their final guidelines on that. Various groups have been putting out different opinions, including the state of Texas has put out some guidelines. I think there's pretty good consensus opinion that healthcare workers will be in the first tier, particularly frontline healthcare workers and first responders. Then I think most of the discussion I've seen is that the second tier will include high-risk people. That's going to include people who are over the age of 65, people with medical conditions like obesity, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, COPD, and other lung disease that puts them at high risk, people who are immunocompromised for some reason. Then after that, as far as then how they start distributing After that, to other people, I think is right now some question mark, and that's why I haven't seen as many details. This may be a a curveball here, but I personally know friends who have had it and are still trying to recover from it. A married couple in particular, they are still complaining months after having it of feeling fine one minute and just sudden lethargy that just almost completely takes over them. And I'm also reading articles. There was an article I read from the Mayo Clinic of people who either already had heart disease or 
had it, didn't know it, or didn't have heart disease, who are now having arrhythmia problems. Will this vaccine eliminate those problems? First of all, I think we're going to be vaccinating people who have even had COVID because we don't know about long-term immunity. It's not going to help those, I think, unfortunately, who have already had it and are suffering the consequences. It should hopefully prevent people from getting new infections and dealing with these consequences, which if you describe, there's been heart issues, there's been nerve uh, system issues, both stroke-like symptoms and peripheral neuropathy, um, nerve, you know, nerve damage in the arms and the legs from it. There's been kidney problems. There's been, you know, permanent lung damage. Um, and then there's that whole long hauler syndrome that you mentioned with the debilitating fatigue, weight loss, and other things that for some people has gone on for months. And sometimes that can happen in people who had relatively mild disease to begin with. So it's been hard to predict who's going to suffer the side effects long term from having a COVID infection. You mentioned having side effects from this vaccine. Every year when I get the flu shot, my arm is sore as heck for about three days, and I typically run a low-grade fever for about a day, and then I'm over it. So it's, it's not like the side effects they're talking about with this vaccine are really that much different from other vaccines. But how do you get through to people to tell them you really should consider it with your doctor's input, you should consider getting the vaccine? Well, I think part of it is just, again, reassuring people that some reaction to a vaccine is not abnormal. I mean, the whole point of taking the vaccine is that you're hyper stimulating the immune response. So getting some symptoms of a hyped up immune system, including like you just described, a little feverish, a little achy, the injection site being a little red and sore, actually mean that the vaccine's doing what it's supposed to do. It means that it's, uh, you know, jumpstarting your immune system to get working. Now, there's been a lot of concern that this was rushed technology. They actually started working with mRNA technology back in 1989. It's kind of been looking for a place to go. They've done research on it on some genetic diseases and also on cancer, and it just hasn't really worked well for a variety of reasons. And they've also been doing some preliminary research using this for other viruses, including SARS and some others. So I don't think it's really rushed in the sense that it just popped up last year that, oh, we've got this new technology. And I'm glad the FDA extended their plan that they asked for that extra month of safety data. That makes me feel better too. And I've been looking at the data as it's been coming out. And again, it kind of matches what you expect for any vaccine. Now, are there going to be any long-term consequences of using this vaccine? I don't know because, again, it's only been a few, as you pointed out, it's only been a few months. But these are pretty large trials when you're talking about that they've been using these vaccines in tens of thousands of people. That's much larger than many medications do before they ever get FDA approval in general. So I feel like from a safety point of view, they've done a pretty good job on this. My main concern, honestly, isn't the, quote, safety. It's how long is it going to be effective? Do, is it going to be a yearly thing that we have to have boosters? Are we going to make it two years? Some of the data on common coronavirus, which causes the common cold, is that the immunity is usually pretty much gone by two years. So if this coronavirus is acting like common cold coronavirus, then we probably are talking about having to do booster shots for people probably as soon as two years. 
guest on the podcast is Dr. Meg Reitmeyer, who is very well-versed and has been very involved in treating COVID patients. When I had the shingles vaccine, I had to have two different shots. From what I understand, same thing with COVID. Now, what I heard from my doctor was, you better come back and get the second one. Why is that important for any two-step vaccine process? And why is it done that way? So it's done that way, again, to help minimize the side effects. Because to really get an extremely robust long-term vaccination response, you have to give a fairly decent dose of the vaccine, as well as there are chemicals in the vaccine called adjuvants, which help boost the immune response. And giving those all at once can be a little overwhelming to people. So by dividing it up into smaller doses and giving it a few times, we can get a better overall smoother long-term response. And, you know, remember that for your kids too, you know, their MMRs, their polio, their DPT. I don't know if you remember all that, but you had to take them back and they got multiple of those too. Kind of the same thing. You give smaller doses several times. It allows the immune system to respond more vigorously each time and have a longer term, more robust overall response without risking as much of the side effects. My final question What are your hopes for this vaccine? From what you've read, what are your expectations? What are your hopes? Well, my hope is that people are comfortable enough to get it, that we get enough people to have herd immunity. And that term's been kind of misused by the media and some people in political circles who don't really understand what it means. But It does mean having a certain number of people in the population so the virus cannot freely circulate. I think we're going to have a hard time completely eliminating COVID at this point because it's so entrenched internationally. But we might. I may be being overly pessimistic on this. But obviously, I'd like to see that we have enough people inoculated, especially the people that we're most concerned about having the highest risk for hospitalization and for death that we can relax some of the things that we have had to restrict so much as far as travel, social gatherings. I mean, I foresee, though, that we may need to be doing masking and social distancing well into next year just because of the amount of time it's going to take to distribute the vaccine throughout the entire world. Because remember, it's not just the United States we have to worry about, especially as people start traveling again internationally and we increase people going back and forth from the United States from other parts of the world who could reintroduce the virus. We've got to look at this as the whole world being treated for COVID, not just the United States. And can I put in a plug right now that people, reminder to get their flu vaccine, it's not too late. We are seeing less flu than usual this year, but the data has shown that co-infection with flu and COVID doubles your risk of hospitalization and death. So you definitely do not want to get flu and COVID at the same time. And, And we did see that quite a bit at the tail end of last season, and we don't want to see that this year. Anything we didn't discuss that you think we should? I think people should just let the FDA do their job independently without any political pressure on them, and they seem to be doing that right now. They've made some good decisions lately, again, like extending the amount of time they wanted data. I think that their review board has good people on it and let them do with their job and people just not interfere and let the process do what it needs to do. Guest on the podcast today, Dr. Meg Reitmeyer. Thank you for being on. I appreciate it very much. 
Thank you, John. Appreciate the opportunity. Be safe, everyone.